0: Uh, Okay. First things first, I guess. Uh, Do you have a joke for us?
1: I do have a joke. I thought about it. So (laughs) as a child, I liked um, chicken crossing the road jokes. So why did the chicken stop in the middle of the road? Oh, why? She wanted to lay it on the line. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Which is kind of like my life a little bit, I think. Lay it on the line or stopping
0: in the middle of the road? Maybe both. (laughs) Hello, this is The Calgarian. I'm Taylor Lambert. Kevin Allen is my guest today. Kevin is someone uh, who has been around the Calgary art scene for a long time. Uh, He's a born and raised Calgarian. He was a co-founder of the long-running Fairy Tales Queer Film Festival. Uh, But more recently, he started a project to explore, uncover, and document Calgary's gay history. That turned into a book that came out a few months ago called Our Past Matters, Stories of Gay Calgary, and it's just a fantastic book. It's a glimpse into our local history through a lens that is often forgotten or neglected or often actively suppressed through history, uh, which is how LGBTQ2 plus Calgarians lived, uh, organized, survived, and thrived um, going back to the 19th century. Uh, I had a great conversation with Kevin about some of those stories and why this book is so important for understanding our city. Just before we get there, a reminder that your support for the show helps it continue. Please tell your friends about this podcast, leave a review in your podcast app so other people can find it, or show your support with a buck or two a month on Patreon. You can find all of that information on the show website, Visit thecalgarian.ca and thank you for your support. And now, here is my conversation with Kevin Allen. What, what did you like about chicken crossing the road, Joe? I was a
1: child, I just, I, as a maybe a 10 year old, I just thought, you know, why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side was so funny, like just because it was so inane and silly and then Eventually a repertoire of chicken crossing roads in various stages um, developed
0: <laughs> That should be your next book a companion <laughs> of, uh, of Terrible chicken and road jokes There you go um, uh, Okay, so I, there's a lot that I want to talk to you about I sure. want to talk about uh, the book I want to talk about some of the stories that are in the book I want to talk about why that this book is so important But before we get to any of that I thought we should start at the beginning um, can you talk a little bit about what first got you interested in local gay history?
1: Sure. I, it was an accident, sort of. Um, I grew up in Calgary um, and have long, deep roots here. My On my mother's side, um, there's four generations of my family that have lived in Calgary. And one night at the dinner table at my parents' house, it just occurred to me this curious thought, where did gay people live? live, exist, do things in the 50s and 60s. And I had my parents who were here then. And um, my dad, my mom joked, there were were no gay people then, ha ha ha. And then my dad didn't say anything, but later that night he said he knew the Palliser Hotel was this drinking spot for gay men uh, when he was a young professional in like say 1960. And that got me really interested in Um, Learning more about that and how how old are you when that conversation happened? I guess this was 2011 maybe 2012 so in my late 30s Um, I do think there's something about as you get older as I become middle-aged I'm more interested in The past and and stories of my childhood and stories of um, the city's sort of youth Uh, So I think I had to get to a certain level of maturity before I was really interested in history but then I I Tell people I fell down this rabbit hole and just started the project and uh, it's taken me on all sorts of different turns and Yeah, it's been really wonderful
0: (laughs) That project is the Calgary Gay History Project Uh, Like what was your initial goal in in doing that? Did you have some conception of what you wanted to do or what it would look like?
1: Yes, I don't know if you recall in 2012 we were the city of culture there was this extra funding through uh, Calgary's development to uh, be the cultural capital of Canada, and Michael Green, who was curating it now deceased, um, put out a call for artists and historians in residence. And um, I thought, oh, here's my opportunity. I, you know, I've always wanted to explore uh, Calgary's gay history more after this conversation with my father, and uh, so I applied and I got a five thousand dollar grant to be the historian residence at uh, Calgary Outlink in the old Y building, old YWC building, where historically a lot of the gay organizations have lived. And um, I thought initially it was going to be, you know, a six-month project. I'm going to do some research, I'm going to interview a couple of people, see if I can find anything in archives and make a public presentation and be done. But um, that's when our history got its hooks into my heart and I just kept going. So... Um, it attracted a bunch of volunteers to the project. There's been probably about 10 uh, volunteers who've contributed research and and done some wonderful sort of grunt work going through newspapers documenting things and uh, It's led to a play a book a film and I might be starting another film in the next few months. Oh cool So what were
0: you what were you doing when you started this project? Like, what What was your
1: So, I'm an arts administrator by background. So, for 20 years, I've been running different arts organizations in Calgary. And um,
0: you were one of the founders
1: of Fairy Tales, right? Correct. (laughs) Good good research. Yeah. Uh, So, that was uh, 20 years ago this june my gosh um happy anniversary can you just tell
0: people who don't know what fairy tales is because it it probably doesn't have the profile that it ought to
1: fairy tales is calgary's one of calgary's longest running film festivals and calgary's queer uh film and video festival and i was working at the calgary society of independent filmmakers at the time and uh, we were interested in getting some queer content um on screens uh this is sort of early days of the internet so there weren't like online video things and uh representation was really um sparse and slim for lgbtq2 communities so we did this festival it was a great hit um and we didn't take any public funding because previous queer film festivals in the city got into a lot of hot water uh from social conservatives about you know taxpayer dollars and stuff so we wanted to be kind of independent we and the community sponsored us and we did this really lovely festival and i'm really proud to say that you know 20 years later it's still i feel like a grandparent not a parent uh, (laughs) because so many generations of um really cool people have worked at that organization and brought really good programming to calgary
0: so back to the project yeah that was a nice tangent yeah Yeah. uh so you were an arts administrator you didn't have any background as a as a historian or as a writer necessarily no
1: not at all so um i'm an amateur historian i guess now i'm calling myself a community historian I'm not an academic. Um, I'm academically trained, but not in history. Yeah, history just sort of captured me. And um, now I'm interested in the city in all sorts of different aspects of its history, but particularly how the gay community intersects with these previous um, periods in Calgary's story.
0: So you just kind of fell into this and it just sort of. I don't
1: know, sucked you in further and further, it seems like. Um, There's been some reward, um, sort of intangible reward. Like, the community really wanted it. Yeah. So um, I get a lot of positive regard and positive feedback about doing this work.
0: Well, I mean, once you decided to do the book, then you had a Kickstarter. Yeah. And you got $20,000. I know. For a Kickstarter to do a book about Calgary's gay history. I know. Yeah. That's nuts. I mean, it's awesome, but it's like, (laughs) that's, that's nuts. Like, what did you expect to get?
1: I don't... I'd hope there was appetite for the book, and I was completely um, blown away by the support, and really honored, and um, really grateful that uh, people believed in me. And uh, it wasn't just about the money uh, for the project; it really brought a lot of awareness to the project. What I was doing too, and brought a lot of support with volunteers and other things too.
0: So then you started to do the book. So let's talk about the book a little bit. Okay. Um, the uh, so. Where well, I want to start with the book uh, John Ibbotson did the foreword yeah. for, for the book Yeah, um, and uh, the book which is called our past matters um, stories of gay Calgary and the start of Ibbotson's um, Forward just struck me. The first line is the story of queer in our time is a story of spaces And I wonder what, what does that mean to you? How do you unpack that?
1: Well, I mean for a good part of the 20th century Queers were Canadian queers were pretty isolated and probably this is a global phenomenon where um, there wasn't a lot of language around sexual orientation and gender diversity, and people just sort of uh, didn't know other queer people and sort of languished by themselves. And so, when um, communities started forming, or people started finding each other largely in Canada's larger cities, they started carving out these places and spaces and creating um, community, you know, at a very grassroots level. And so, um, I think these spaces have uh exaggerated importance or or they're they're special in our history because um we were criminals basically and uh you know it was like a speakeasy or it was like uh you know a place um a lot of uh, queer elders gay elders talk about those early bars as a place where we could let our hair down like that expression uh really meant something to them because they were on guard all the time in their sort of daily lives so um, spaces became a really important uh, genesis of our community
0: Is is there something about the local aspect of that that's, that you think is really important For the queer community as opposed to just like understanding the, the more broad less tethered to a specific place the the fight for mm-hmm. Rights and things like that. Is there something about like how it happened here specifically that you think is valuable?
1: Yeah, I absolutely do So I'm I'm a Calgarian. I'm a fairly proud Calgarian and (laughs) um, there's something that really annoys me in um, national culture, how Calgary gets sort of pigeonholed and marginalized and stereotyped. And I remember in an, I used to uh, be the volunteer president of a national arts organization and go to Ottawa or Toronto or Montreal for these conferences. And people would, um, you know, look at me and talk to me and like put their hand on my knee and say, "Oh, you live in Calgary. How do you do that? Like, I'm so sorry. You know, like, um, how can you be gay there?" And they just—it uh, bothered me. Um, people who had never been to Calgary giving me, you know, their interpretations of what Calgary is. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm able to take criticism about Calgary, but I need like informed criticism. And uh, so. This is true in the gay community as well. And in sort of the national LGBTQ2 history discourse, Calgary doesn't figure very much in it. And so I wanted to establish what was happening here and what made um, Calgary different in the human rights struggle that we faced. And then of course I um, encountered early in the research, the story of Everett Klippert, who's a Calgarian who changed the law in the country. So it was like all of a sudden, bang, like Calgary's important, Calgary was, um essential in in this story
0: yeah okay that's a good segue uh <laughs> people i feel like yeah everett klippert was uh, an essential character in in this narrative um but he's certainly not a household name no uh even still even though he, his profile has been raised a little bit yeah um who was everett Clibbert?
1: So he was a household name in Calgary in 1960, I would say. (laughs) He was front page news uh, in the Herald and the Albertan, which is the predecessor to the Calgary Sun. So he was a very popular Calgary bus driver. Um, People talk about uh, missing earlier buses so they could ride home with Everett because he was such a chatty, nice guy. And he was born in Saskatchewan but moved here with his family when he was two and grew up in Calgary. Um, He was sort of from a working class background. He only made it to grade eight. Uh, in school and then started working uh different jobs um and he got into trouble in 1960 here in calgary when one of the fathers of the young man he was having an affair with um called the police and the police came to his house and interrogated him and everett i think unwisely always told the truth when he was dealing with authority figures and um confessed to having had sex with another man. And then they found his little black book of dating history and they found 17 other names of men. And they charged him with 18 counts of gross indecency and he went to jail for four years. Gross indecency was um, how homosexuals were criminalized for most of the 20th century. Um, He got out of jail, left town. He's from a big Baptist family here in Calgary um, and moved to the Northwest Territories. He got into trouble there because someone tried to burn down the mine manager's house and the RCMP looked at anyone who had a criminal record and his jail time surfaced and he confessed to having had sex with four men in the Northwest Territories and he went back to jail. Fortunately, his sister Leah Clippert, who was a legal secretary uh, for the city of Calgary's um, solicitor and knew her way around the legal system and um, kept challenging her brother's court cases she thought they were unjust and uh his court case made it all the way to the supreme court in 1967 the supreme court ruled they upheld the lower court ruling saying that he was indeed a dangerous sexual offender and they even noted in the court cases that he was really mild-mannered and jail might not be the best place for him but he was a menace to himself and a menace to canadian society likely to have sex with men again if he got out so he was to be incarcerated for life which was a very dramatic um sentence particularly in the context that england had just decriminalized homosexuality earlier that year from their own sort of internal legal wrangling and you know commissions and investigation inquiry um and so here's canada like kind of moving in completely the opposite direction and um sort of Legal scholars and small L liberals in Canada at the time thought it was appalling that we were going to now put all these people in jail forever. And uh, Pierre Trudeau, who was justice a liberal justice minister at the time, had this famous quote after the Supreme Court re- ruling on the steps of the House of Commons saying, the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation, which he actually cribbed from a Globe and Mail editorial a week before. Like, he kind of... It reused it, but he's the one that is uh, um, remembered to have for that quote. he got get called out on Twitter for stealing it. Today <laughs> he did that today. Well, and, you know, most Canadians remember that quote because that, you know, uh, was a turning page in Canadian history about kind of modernizing the country and uh, abortion and diff- a whole bunch of things were um, um, brought sort of forward in uh, Trudeau's time. He had this just society, Um, he ran on a just society platform in 68 and had a huge victory and was Trudeau mania. So when he was prime minister, he brought this omnibus bill, C-150, through that decriminalized homosexuality with caveats. You had to be two consenting adults, you had to be age 21 or older, you had to be in the privacy of your own home, like no public sex and the law changed, and that was really important. And Everett Klippert, um was the man who changed it. And unfortunately, uh, law changes aren't retroactive, so he had to serve out the rest of his uh, jail time, and he was there in jail until 71. Mm-hmm. Then had a quiet life after that.
0: Why do you think Clippert's uh, name
1: sort of fell by the wayside? I think he wanted it to fall by the wayside. Yeah. Um, I know there were efforts throughout the decades by the gay community to lionize him to, you know, um, do documentaries, to put him in parades. Um, and he avoided, uh, I think he was quite ashamed by his past. He actually, uh, when he got out of jail, married a woman who was much older than him uh, and they were sort of lived as companions. And, um, his family and his generation, whenever media or activists or anyone came, came knocking, they shut them down quite strongly um and i think i've only had success with the clivert family because that generation has died off so it, i've been uh i've interviewed his nieces and nephews and just as canadian society has changed their family has changed and they're willing to talk about their uncle and um share his stories and his things but um when everett and his siblings generation were all alive they didn't want to engage
0: had you heard of him
1: uh, before you started this project no not not at all No. how did you come across him Um, funnily enough uh, I had a a good friend of mine who lives in Lethbridge uh, is an artist and graphic designer Uh, I commissioned her to kind of help me uh, do my website and do some of my initial promotional materials when I got the residency at Calgary Outlink And she produced this um, picture of like a 1960s Calgary bus with with my logo on it. And I was like, I don't get it, what's with the bus? And she's like, haven't you heard of this guy? I I just Googled Calgary gay. And so she had stumbled across him. And then of course, I I needed to find out more. So yeah, it was sort of a random happenstance.
0: Uh, what are some of the other stories in the book that you want to share with us? Anything that, like, uh, surprised you? or
1: Yeah, one of my favorite stories um, I just encountered in the summer of 2016 was the story of Jean Leroux. He was um, a French-Canadian uh, born in 1830s, just outside of Montreal. He wanted to be a Catholic priest, and he went to seminary school there. And he was found in bed with another man and ejected from the seminary and he migrated out West and was associated with the Catholic missions and churches out here. And he kept getting into trouble because of his uh, sexual behavior Um, and ended up living a very nomadic life with the Siksika, the Blackfoot uh, people uh, who didn't have sort of the cultural prohibitions against sexual orientation and gender diversity and had sort of spaces in their culture um, for these different roles. And um, he became one of the best speakers of Blackfoot in the 19th century in the territory before we were even we in Alberta. And um, when Treaty 7 was being signed in 1877, Lieutenant Governor David Laird at the time had tapped Jean Leroux on the shoulder and said, we want you to translate for the crown. Uh, in the treaty negotiations, because the chiefs didn't speak English or French. Um, and uh, Jean Leroux said no, he was uh, working on behalf of the chiefs. So he, cause he was close personal friends with Crowfoot. Treaty 7 was just in the city, like the physical document um, for the Canada 150 anniversary it was at Fort Calgary. And you could see Jean Leroux's signature, and he actually had all the chiefs um, sign their names with X's on the, like he pointed out where they had to sign. So I just think. It's really interesting it's sort of the founding of calgary and southern alberta settler culture there's this gay story uh he got a name in uh blackfoot he was called niels katapi which meant three persons because he was um constantly proselytizing. and he told um the blackfoot that his god and their god were basically the same except that his god was split into three um you know the trinity and they thought that was hilarious, and so they called him, <laughs> in their language, three persons.
0: <laughs> that is a great story. Yeah, yeah.
1: I love that story. To and, your
0: knowledge, has that story been highlighted in any of the revisitations of, of Treaty 7 or, or the reexamination of that history, like, or, or is it just... No,
1: it's really... I mean, Jean LaRue is sometimes mentioned, um, but... And, and there's been some academic work around him, but it hasn't been popularized, you know, so... Um, he lived a kind of very uh, impoverished existence after that and became he went back to being nomadic and uh, eventually Father Lacombe uh, swept him up out of he was kind of living in a hermitage in Pincher Creek area and he brought him back to his um, seniors home that he had built in Midnapore and he was buried there in like 1919 Mm. I actually went to see his grave it's now I did it's Kind of behind, uh, it's still a Catholic seniors' uh, place slash I don't know convent. <laughs> I'm not sure what institution is there. So I kind of like trespassed and found his um, name on the stone and stuff like that. <laughs> not too long ago.
0: Um, tell me about Club Carousel. All
1: oh, right, yeah, Club Carousel is a really important story, and the cover of the book is um, an image of their logo. Um, done by Calgary artist Lisa Braun. Yeah, I want I wanted
0: to ask about that actually. Yeah. Like, how would you describe the the cover of the book? Like, what is, it's. Um... Well,
1: it's a woodcut, which is Lisa's style of their logo, which was a carousel horse. And so, when they were um, building the club, they were cleaning out this sort of underground bar space. They found an old can of carousel paint, and that was sort of the logo of the the paint company. And so, they took that as their inspiration for the the club.
0: It feels to me like this. Can you, you chose this for the cover, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, this feels significant for a bunch of different reasons. Okay, why do you think it's significant? Yeah. Well, it's a. It, it, from the appearance of it, it appears to be a horse. Yeah, and it's a. It's a book about. Gay Calgary history. Yeah. So it seems like you're tying it in with our ranching and stampede history. You know, I
1: never actually thought about that, but you're right. It's maybe a bit of a cliche to have a horse on a Calgary <laughs> no, I, history book. I mean, with that a background of, of, of
0: Club Carousel, which yeah. you'll tell us about in a second, like it, it just seems to be like the perfect cover. But like when you first look at it, you're like, I, I don't get it. Like, right. what's the, what is it?
1: Yeah. So I guess it's coded. Um, back in the early 70s, people who went to Club Carousel, would um they made these sort of like um patch logos that they'd sew on their jackets and stuff like that and so it was a coded way of knowing like if if you saw someone wearing that carousel horse you knew they were gay so that's also why like i thought it would be important for the cover i wanted i and i wanted i didn't want something representational like one person or something like that so i went with the carousel logo yeah that's perfect
0: It's it's an emblem of both like Stereotypical stampede, Calgary, and also of Calgary's gay history.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I actually I didn't make the connection before, so <laughs> thank you.
0: Um, so yeah, where where was Club Carousel? What was Club Carousel?
1: So Club Carousel was located at 1207 1st Street, Southwest, uh, and it was an underground space. There was a bar there in the early '60s called the Depression, which interestingly, Joni Mitchell had her first public performance. In the bar was
0: called the Depression
1: in the early '60s. Yeah, oh, what it, a name for a bar! <laughs> it was kind of like a um, a place where people—I don't think they even served alcohol—they but they smoked and drank endless cups of coffee and talked, had deep thoughts, and <laughs> folk music, and it was kind of count, kind of a countercultural place. And so, it's got Joni Mitchell's first public appearance which I think is cool. But then later in the um, 60s uh, there was another club um, downtown where the Uptown Theatre used to be underground called the 620 Club which was the address and you had to enter it through the alley and this was still when homosexuality was criminalized so it was pretty on the down low quiet and you went through the alley and down but it was it was turning out to be quite popular and the owners Uh, wanted to expand. So they found this space at 1207 First Street, this not unused bar space, and they opened a bar there. But um, the operators, who I believe were gay, started letting straight people in for a cover price. And the uh, gay men and women who were going um, were offended by that and thought that they were sort of figures in a zoo or... Um, they were a source of entertainment for, you know, straight tourists and uh, they boycotted the 1207 and uh, they had house parties for four weeks in this sort of official boycott and you weren't supposed to cross go to the club and they actually had um, people that were undercover going into the club to see who was, you know, um, not observing the boycott and they put the club owners out of business uh, in that month. And then they talked to the landlord and said could we start a club and that's how club carousel was born and it became super successful the police tried to shut it down right in its inception and it went to court um they charged the um operators of running a cabaret with a license uh but the judge threw it out they had a really uh sympathetic lawyer um his name was harvey gitter he had them form a private members club that like a charity, and so um, the judge threw the um, court case out. The police in the trial said they observed men dancing with men and women dancing with women, and it was, you know, outrageous. And um, once Club Carousel got their um, charitable license, then they were good to go. And they heavily policed uh, the door. They had you know a bouncer, and they you could only get in if you were a paid member or a guest of a member. And so no straights were allowed and it became this really thriving place in the early 70s it was the first club of its kind on the prairies and um in two years they had something like 600 members and it was if i've been in this space uh it's this it's an underground storage space basically it's got low ceilings it's there's no windows it's a total fire trap and they would you know pack up to 300 people in this uh, space in the early 70s so it's amazing how long was it in operation for so it lasted um, from 1970 until about 1978. It moved a couple times, um, and it sort of lost the charm of the early years, and it, it petered out. Um, but by the m- mid-'70s, commercial gay bars started appearing in Calgary, and they had a lot of capital, and they had fancy dance floors, and they sort of like competed the initial club. Mm. So it kind of in the evolution of the... Uh, community uh, It became more of a commercial um, Socializing spaces, but they did seed similar clubs in the other five four prairie cities. So and they had this um, Sort of informal Gathering once a year and so it was sort of the beginning of uh, Very early activism in the gay community too. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah
0: um, One of the things in, in the book that really intrigued me was um, of color collective Mm. and the story of that which uh i was totally unaware of can you can you give us a story
1: on that sure um well of color was a a group of queers of color in the 90s and um it's strangely reminiscent of identity politics today i find in 20 the late teens 2017 2018 this group of people um were meeting out of the old y which is where most queer groups have met historically, and they were uh, concerned about racism within the gay community. And um, there was racism racism within the gay community that they were, um, rightly and notably, pointing out and making, causing a lot of waves in the in the gay community, and uh, through their politics. And uh, I think it caused some positive change within the community. Um, they produced a very successful a film festival called The Fire Have Become in 1995 uh, because some of the organizers were connected to film festivals. Actually, one of one of them, Kelly Langard, um, was who I started fairy tales with. Mm. Um, where is I going with this story? This is where you're going to have to cut. <laughs> no, this stays in. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, The Fire Have Become Festival uh, was... They, they booked the Glenbow Theater, the Glenbow Museum Theater. And when the film program came out, um, if you're at all familiar with 1990s media art, um, there was a lot of provocative stuff uh, in it. And the 90s were, there was a lot of identity politics and issues of um, voice. And um, there's a militancy there and the gay community was part of that. Uh, but within the gay community, they, they had... A really dynamic program uh, and some very provocative titles of some of these videos and um, social conservatives found out about it um, this is the period of AIDS in Calgary so there was a lot of sort of like cultural anxiety around the gay community and uh, they got organizing and got on the bandwagon and tried to shut the festival down and give the Glenbow Museum a lot of heat about hosting this you know radical fringe cultural event And um, there's a really interesting story uh, that people who were involved in the Out Color Collective recounted where they um, the Glenbow called an emergency meeting because they were gonna cancel the festival because they were worried about donors and uh, the negative publicity. And back then we didn't have email on the internet, which is hard to believe, Uh, but so it was a, a phone tree. Like everyone had to call two friends involved in the gay community or the arts community. And uh, they managed to assemble about 50 or 60 people at this meeting at the Glenbow. And the three Glenbow executives allowed everyone like two minutes to speak. And the speakers that had been gathered were so persuasive, the executive said, just give us a minute, we need to confer amongst ourselves. And so they said, you stay here, we'll go out because there's only three of us. And they agreed to host the festival. Like they stood up for the community and took the heat and, um, yeah, that was courageous of them. And I remember being a young um, person in my 20s going to that festival. And they were um, they were picketers. They were, like, people with, you know, I don't know, hateful signs and stuff like that that we had to cross to go to the wow. movie theater. Um, but, I mean, I felt pretty defiant. And this it was packed, sold out every night. Huh. So, you know, that sometimes that controversy raises the profile of, but, um, it was, yeah, I mean, early parts of Calgary's history to be an out, uh, queer person meant you were, you know, threatened at times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask about your research process for, for all of this stuff. Um, <laughs> Well, because so just based on my own experience, earlier this year, I went down to San Francisco to... I read your articles. Yeah, uh, to do an investigation into Jason Kenney's uh, student activism days there. And there was a part of that that involved his anti-LGBTQ activism and stuff. And so I was uh, looking through uh, a lot of San Francisco's local gay history, uh, newspapers and documents and books and whatever, and... Um, and even though, like San Francisco is a very large, very established, very well organized queer community, yeah, uh, the history of it um, paled in comparison to like general local history. Um, it just seems like it, it was just like a little bit harder to find the facts. It was just a little bit less well preserved than what you might find otherwise. And so I'm just curious if you found the same challenges
1: with Calgary's gay history. Absolutely. So when I first started, like, I didn't know where to start. I'm not a historian. I hadn't done that much research in archives and and things before I had started this project. And my first step was sort of age profiling people at Calgary Pride in 2012. Like anyone who had gray hair, I just went up and said, (laughs) are you from Calgary? (laughs) Hi, my name is Kevin, blah, 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 blah. And give them my spiel. And uh, eventually, like, I finally broke into the sort of elder community here. And it took a while to build up trust because, I mean, mm-hmm. these stories are personal and sometimes challenging. And um, so for for a big part of my project, it's oral history. And um, archives and institutions and libraries weren't collecting queer history uh, in earlier decades. Uh, it's, the, it's a huge sort of... Um, Oversight and blank spot. I mean, I mean the community was so underground itself that um, In some cases we were even destroying our own history, you know Because we didn't want to have evidence of our life and our lifestyles. So it's no surprise to me that uh, You found that in San Francisco. I tell a story. I went to the provincial archives for the first time. I think in 2014 or 2015 Uh, And they're in Edmonton and they're this beautiful public building, like multi-million dollar building with, to house, you know, all the millions and millions of documents and artifacts. And when you do archival research, they often make you, you know, like put everything in a locker, you can only use a pencil. There's like, there's all these little hoops that you have to jump through. And so I did all the the hoops and I had my little card and my pencil and I was, uh, went into the locked door to get and there's a you know um an information person or our archivist in the center who's there to help you and i walk up to her and said can i have everything you've got on alberta gay history like i'll just look at every citation you've got and she kind of looked at me you know nervously and started typing on her computer and she found two citations wow in the provincial archives of alberta (laughs) wow They have literally millions of documents. And uh, she also said no one had ever asked before. Wow. That's nuts. And that was 2015, I think. Yeah. So I think it's important. (laughs) I mean, my sort of activist agenda in in writing the book was um, whether people think it's a good book or not, it was to actually just uh, capture these stories and, and save them from disappearing. And some of the people I've interviewed have since passed on. So I feel really uh, a sense of urgency around um, capturing these stories. Yeah. Just
0: for the record, it is a good book. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's a great book. Um, what's What's the reception been like?
1: It's been really lovely. It, um, it came out
0: uh, at the end of last year, correct?
1: Uh, November 22nd. Yeah. So, yeah. I had my launch here at the library. Uh, 300 people came. Uh, they gave me a standing ovation, which was special um, and unusual for a book launch not,
0: not bad for an amateur historian
1: <laughs> um, yeah I get emotional uh, a little bit because people have said really really nice things about the book and, um, just uh, last week or the week before this has never happened to me um, I got a link to a CBC radio piece Daybreak Alberta they talked about my book like they did a book review without me you know like I this was the first time I've ever had my work discussed sort of in a third party context, like usually it's like this, like we're talking about my work or I'm doing an interview with The Herald or something like that, but this was an author talking to the radio host about my book like for ten minutes, right, and um, uh, <laughs> I know the author who's talking about my book and and really grateful she did it, but yeah, it had me really emotional um yeah, so. That's great. And uh, there's a professor at the university who just picked it up uh, for the spring class. I didn't write it in academic style, but he's uh, doing a um, queer history course in the spring semester. So I had to haul 50 books up to the U of C bookstore. And that's amazing. Like it's, yeah, it's people that's very cool have been saying nice things and it's been um, selling really well. And yeah, I'm re- very grateful.
0: You are also currently the historian in residence at the library?
1: So, no, I'm not actually, but the the library's fudging it. I have kept my photo up there. Uh, It was a three-month residency. Is it over now? It ended January 31st. So I was the inaugural, like when the library opened. So I did most of my, I was commissioned to do 100 hours of uh, community engagement. And I did most of them in November and December. Um, And they intend to have another historian in residence. It was a partner uh, ship with the Calgary Heritage Authority, um, but they didn't have uh, they don't have another historian lined up. They don't know how many they're going to run a year, and so yes, everyone thinks I'm still the historian in residence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my office is not used all the time. Although I um, do, am doing an exhibition for them next month, as that was connected to the residency around uh, the 50th anniversary of decriminalization, which is this May 14th. And I'm doing a public lecture here. Um, And we're going to probably do some, there's going to be some actors doing some readings and hopefully it'll be a fun event. Uh, So I'm still connected to the library and they've been super supportive about the history project. And I mean, they hosted my launch. And as a young person, I worked at the library for 10 years at the downtown library. So it's been this strange kind of homecoming, like there's still people who work here who I used to work with when I was you know, 30 years ago, Mm. so. It's this really sweet uh, thing that they invited me to participate in.
0: So back to the idea of the stereotype of Calgary and uh, your your friends saying, oh, how could you be gay there? Like yeah. how hard it must be. Yeah. How would you, because you've, you've, you're have you've from Calgary, you've lived here yeah, most of your life, all your life. The, I don't
1: know. Almost my whole life. But.
0: So how have you seen the city change? And how have you seen... The Queer community here evolve and change like how would you compare and contrast what it was like in your youth compared to what? It's like now or what it might be like for youth. Yeah today
1: Yeah, so the city's gotten so much bigger I think when I was was born in 1970 and I think the town was 400,000 people or something like that so it's gotten bigger and more cosmopolitan and I came out in 1990 uh, at 19 and, um, I came out at a time when AIDS deaths were, AIDS panic was really, uh, had affected Calgary and North America and lots of people were dying and, uh, it was a very militant time. Um, it's where the queer comes from, the sort of appropriation of the word queer, mm. Um, we're here where queer get used to it. And that was sort of a rallying cry for people who came of age at the same time that I did. So I really love the word queer and I really identify with it. People a generation older, um, not so much. Um, and there was violence on the streets. Um, people were bashed. Uh, I remember going to the bars on 17th Avenue and like seeing the young men hunting in their trucks with the baseball bats and stuff like that you had to be really careful uh, I, I don't want to overstate it but there was um it was yeah you had to if you went to a pride parade or if you went to like the film festival i just mentioned like you had to face opposition people would um say things to your face that they can't say today because of social pressure and it was a different time um that said uh the sort of um, other side of that is the community was really close and really tight. And when you went to these gay bars or gay spaces or gay film festivals, you really f- felt a sense of belonging and community um, that I feel doesn't exist now. And when I talk to young queer people uh, who come on the Gay History Walks or they talk to me after the presentation, they feel this um, sense of loss like they those times were so uh more exciting or they have a sense of not belonging and um i have a gay friend who said to me once yeah but we were so much more fabulous then like we had there the times were fun like we had yeah good times uh and i think it was it was that way because of the pressure that we were under in sort of mainstream society uh i'm prefer to live this way (laughs) <laughs> without the threat of violence and uh, where homophobia and transphobia is called out. Um, it's, a, it's much... It's, much um, uh, it's heartwarming for me to see young people come out at early ages and, um, you know, be teenagers and have their hearts broken and do all the normal things where I feel like in, in my day, you know, you were closeted right up until... University and or later. Right? there's lots of um, People who come out in their 30s 40s and 50s, you know after many years of trying to be heterosexual. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad that that sort of psychological pressure um, Is less Yeah.
0: In, in what about Calgary specifically like I know that the city doesn't have the same tradition of organizing and activism of any kind that other cities like say yeah. Edmonton have and yeah. um, How would you describe the 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 queer community here today
1: well Calgary's always been a bit disparate the gay community like uh the Beltline sort of was the epicenter but we never like some of the other Canadian cities where like Vancouver the West End or Church and Wellesley and um, Wellesley in Toronto we never sort of crystallized a Uh, Took over a neighborhood and made it our own right and so I think that there's no
0: gay village in Calgary per se Yeah,
1: the Beltline is close, but it's not quite the same Um, I Think that had Something to do with the character of Calgary's gay community. I also think Calgary's always had this sort of uh, Has been a city on the make right like people came here to make money Mm -hmm. and gay people did that too and so uh, in some cases I think sexual orientation, gender identity took a backseat to, you know, just making it big. So, and that sort of like greed that Calgary has uh, in some aspects, which um, is struggling with now, um, was sort of a flavor in the community too. Hmm.
0: I there's there's a lot of optimism in your description of how things have changed and things are better now and and so forth. Not that everything's fine, but it's it's definitely progressed. Uh, And I think something like this history project also has optimism because why why work so hard to capture the history and and to share with people unless you think that it has value and, and will serve people in the future. I wonder, are you optimistic about the present situation and our immediate future with the recent election of a party that has Notable uh, mm-hmm. strains of homophobia and transphobia and and just all sorts of not great things.
1: It's hard for me to comment on politics as I am a returning officer, um, provincially and federally. However, I can say some things about it in the context of history. And I feel like the fact that there are, you know, protests and parades, um, like around the GSA thing, and there was this sort of spontaneous um, uh, presence that happened in Calgary and Edmonton. What we're fighting about today is different than what we are fighting about 25 years ago. We're we're actually fighting to stay alive 25 years ago. And I am thrilled that uh, in all political parties, there seems to be... Um, a diversity of opinion when it comes to uh, gender and sexually diverse Canadians um the left historically wasn't always um the left had issues with uh gay people and particularly trans people in Canada in the 70s and 80s and i do like the fact that it is socially unacceptable now um you get into a lot of heat for saying homophobic and transphobic things when the Calgary I grew up in, that was not the case.
0: But you can still stay on as a UCP candidate if you have said stuff in the past. I know you can't comment on stuff. I'm just adding that the, yeah. my own thoughts on that. Yeah. <laughs> does, does it? Does it? Does con- it? I did
1: say to my parents because uh, my my father is has has been conservative his whole life, um, and I I was having dinner with them again um, uh, for Easter, and I asked them. I said. What if that was your conservative candidate hmm. and they said they wouldn't vote for him yeah so in my parents mind they can there is a line that you can that you shouldn't cross for them
0: but it sounds like you're still optimistic about the way things are progressing in general
1: yes absolutely 100 percent. yeah i mean um i really feel like the community needs to work more with um uh the transgender our transgender brothers and sisters uh because they have high rates of suicide horribly high rates of um suicide in this country and uh poor health outcomes and i think um that needs a lot of attention and uh, i also think that there's still violence towards our community that needs to be addressed i don't think it's all um roses and rainbows um And I also feel like rights can be rolled back just as quickly as they've come. So I think we have to be vigilant about when we stand up and and speak out. So those are my thoughts about that.
0: All right, I think that's a good note to end on. Kevin, thanks very much for doing this.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: That's it for the show. Big thanks to Kevin. You should definitely go buy his book. It's called Our Past Matters. And also check out his talk at the Central Library in May. The Calgarian is hosted and produced by me, Taylor Lambert. Theme music is Dandelion by Ghostkeeper. If you like this show, please feed and water it by telling your friends, by leaving a review in your podcast app, or by contributing a buck or two a month on Patreon. Visit thecalgarian.ca and find me on Twitter, at TS Lambert. Thanks for listening.